hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. So much of personal finance success is based on our money stories. Our money stories are written by our background, our race, our creed, our gender, our sexual orientation, and all the things that have nothing to do with math and 100% with who we are. On today's Career Money episode number 374, we're talking with Sunem and Israel Tovar of the Dream Teacher Project, who share their stories of being first-generation immigrants who overcame poverty, sexism, and racism, and still build wealth and are on a path to financial independence. Let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Welcome Sunim and Israel to the Queer Money Podcast. We're looking forward to having you and having a great discussion. We are so excited to be here. Thank you again for having us. We're really excited to have this conversation with you all. Of course. Thank you. And thank you for reaching out. So what intrigued us about your story was that there's a couple of layers here. You're first generation immigrants. You grew up, as you told Business Insider and a couple of other publications, you grew up in poverty, dealt with systemic racism. Your dad helped raise, I think you have eight siblings on, he did that on $17,500 while your mother managed the home in LA. So, I mean, that's just, there's a lot of layers there. So what was life like growing up and how did that inform who you became in adulthood? Yeah. So we're actually six siblings in total. So we're six kids, but my dad was the breadwinners. So he had to take care of my mom too. But yeah, so we grew up in Tijuana and then moved to LA and then we eventually moved to Nashville. But when we were living in LA, we lived in really tight conditions. For example, when we moved to LA, we lived in a two bedroom apartment with one bathroom and it was eight of us. So you can imagine how chaotic it was to use the restroom. I don't we struggle with we just the two of us. <laughs> right. So imagine that, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a one restroom. And so I know like all the boys shared like a room. So it was like four of them in one room. And our parents, they actually like slept in the living room. And me and my sister had our own room. Then we moved to Nashville because our parents just couldn't afford to buy a house in LA. We lived in the projects when we moved to Pasadena. But something that I remember growing up was that our parents who, they just barely finished elementary school. Like my mom, I think she went to sixth grade, but our dad, he only went to fifth grade. And I remember they telling us like, you should pursue higher education, go to school. We don't want you to grow up like us having to work with our body. We want you to, you know, get your bachelor's do more education if you want, which is something that we kind of all got because four of us, like four of the siblings, we all have our master's, but we Uh all went to college, but four of us got our our master's because that was something that our dad really told us to do. Yeah. So growing up in poverty led us to develop scarcity money mindsets. And for folks who don't know what a scarcity money mindset is, it's essentially a relationship with money that is characterized as feeling like you don't have enough money feeling anxious, stressed about money, 
feeling when you think about money, you like sometimes overspend, you oversave, you overinvest, and it can manifest in, in various ways. And obviously, it's not specific to if you grew up in poverty that you'll develop a scarcity money mindset. But if you did grow up in that context, you're more prone to it, to developing like this mindset, and you exhibit those behaviors. And so we've actually actively had to work to improve our relationships with money. And we firmly believe that like improving our relationships with money should be a critical component of our wealth building process. And although we both were able to successfully pursue higher education and earn advanced degrees and earn middle-class salaries, we as first-gen professionals still didn't have any generational wealth, right? Like I always say this, I went to Yale and Stanford, and even though I was really lucky to get full scholarships to both places and go to these prestigious like world and receive world-class educations, like I still graduated with no generational wealth. So which led us to become committed to building some level of wealth as soon as possible. Yeah. And that generational wealth seems to be a very important point for you specifically, Israel. I've read that in a couple of your publications and interviews. When you were growing up, what did generational wealth mean to you? And, and why was that so important? Well, to be quite honest, I never really thought about generational wealth. It only I only began to think of generational wealth when I started to deepen my financial literacy. I had no concept of money other than like you know what i saw my parents really struggle with money and sort of like that stress that came around with money me thinking that like going to yell in stanford was going to like just inherently give me generational wealth because you know those institutions tend to accept folks who come with that generational wealth right. and so it was like until i graduated and i started teaching full-time that i was like oh shit like i actually have no money <laughs> and i was super lucky to have access to my sister sanem who got her master's in finance a huge money nerd and expert who was like you need to build wealth and this is how you're going to do it because if i didn't have access to her i wouldn't be able to build the wealth that i have been able to on a teacher salary. Right. Just a sidebar question here, Israel. You identify as as a as a gay man. Is that right? Yeah, I identify yeah. as gay queer. Yeah. Okay. All right. So typically in our community, most of the time we don't find that we are planning to have children. So I'm curious, why is generational wealth? Because we can't create generational wealth for ourselves. Because generational wealth is wealth that is passed down. So why is it important to you, who? may or may not have children what's the importance or the value of it there for you because i think you're the, for folks of you who are listening the, the reality is is that a large percentage of the people who are listening to this podcast do not and will not have children and so they may say to themselves well screw it i don't need generational wealth there's nobody coming after me i don't have kids to pass things down to why is it important to you oh absolutely that's such a great question so as of today i don't plan on having kids but I do have nieces and nephews, and I think that for me, it all, one, I think culturally, like, we're very community-oriented when it comes to, like, Latinos and Latina folks. And so for me, I know that I want to build generational wealth for my nieces and nephews, right? And generational wealth, we often say that it's beyond just the money component. It's, like, the habits, the knowledge the healthy mindsets that we pass down to others. And unfortunately, because of broader systemic issues like racism, colonization, you know, I used to be a history teacher, so I used to talk about this all the time with my students. Like, that's the reason why Black, Indigenous, communities of colors, color, we don't have generational wealth. And I think that, like, for us, 
folks who are of color and were able to access higher education and have access to higher paying jobs is particularly important for us to build that generational wealth that our communities didn't have because of the legacies of colonization and modern day anti-blackness and racism. And so for me, I see it as a personal mission to do that for not only on the micro level for my immediate family, but also on a collective macro level for like black indigenous communities of color that we are constantly facing racism and anti-blackness and all these issues that prevent us from building that wealth that our communities deserve. Yeah. I love that you bring this point up that it's not just about you and the money that you hand down. Cause I think for most people, they think when they, they hear there's this idea of generational wealth, all they think about is, okay, when you die, somebody's going to get a whole bunch of money. Yay. Who is that person? I want to be that person. Right. But what you're saying is generational wealth is not just about the money. It's about the examples that can be shown to other people in our circle of influence, whether that's our family, could be brothers and sisters, could be nieces, nephews, could be cousins, could be other people who just see that. But I think more importantly, as you bring out, it's for the communities that we're in as well. And Mm -hmm. folks, this is why John and I really talk about this idea of financial well-being for queer people is because many of us could just say, fuck it, I don't care. I'm just me. I don't Mm -hmm. need generational wealth and I'm not going to pass this money on. But your group of friends see you, mm-hmm. the people in the community around you see you. They're all people who may be looking to you to guide them in the direction of why should we build generational wealth for our communities? So thank mm-hmm. you. I appreciate you saying that. For sure. Another piece too is that like, unfortunately, because we live in a capitalistic society, wealth, money translates into political power, right. social power, all sorts of power, right? And so as the queer and trans community, we're historically marginalized, right? And so we need as much power as we can get in order for us to move in the right direction. And money, because of the economic model that we currently live under, money does give us that access. It's like you've been listening to the Queer Money Podcast for the last five years. (laughs) Yeah, maybe, right? Just maybe. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. So, Sunam, you are a critical component of this entire story of yours. One, what made you get into finance? <laughs> okay, so so it started in 2015. So I graduated with a bachelor's in psychology. And then I realized, like, oh, I can't make money with this degree, unfortunately. But then I graduated with student loans. And then once I graduated, like my family was like, oh, you graduated, you have some sort of income, you should get a brand new car. So I went ahead and got a brand new car. So like I graduated with a debt of $42,000. And during this time, I was only making like $20,000 because I was had side hustles, such as like web designing and stuff like that. And I realized that I didn't know how to manage my money. I would check my bank account and I would feel really overwhelmed and stressed because I'm like, I don't know if I have enough to pay my debt. And this is what made me realize like, oh, I need to learn more about this, which is where I started like consuming podcasts, reading 
many articles. I love to read. So I read so many blogs, so many articles. And then I was like, hmm, I want to go back to school and study finance because I really enjoy this topic. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get my master's in finance, thinking that this was going to help me learn how to invest and do all of this, but it didn't. They taught me like corporate finance, which is so different from personal finance. But during this time, like I had started learning how to invest and I really, really enjoyed it. It was like a hobby to me. So that's basically how I started. It just started because I wanted to become debt free. And then from there on, I just became really passionate about it and really passionate about teaching everybody, my family and friends. And most of them wouldn't listen to me, but it took them a few like months or years to finally <laughs> listen. Such as she would, I, we always share this funny story. Like we would, when I first started teaching, go on dinner dates every Friday to celebrate that we finished the work week. And then she would be like talking about how we, you know, if you were to invest $20, this $20 meal money into the stock market, your money would be growing, growing and growing. And I just like, didn't, didn't want to listen. I was like, yeah, can I get another margarita instead? Because <laughs> I do not want to listen to this, but we always highlight that your personal finance story is personal and that we always have, like our journeys look very different. And I just wasn't ready in that part of my journey to listen to them. But eventually, when I quit my job after two months and I had a mortgage and debt and all these things, I was like, okay, well, I'm finally going to listen to you and I'm going to stop ordering margaritas. I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> all right. No, so I have another question for Sunan, but I, my first question is for you, Israel, is have you stopped ordering margaritas? <laughs> like, no, you not I, have, a margarita I just make sure that I, I, <laughs> no, I love me some margaritas happy hour. I you do too. Happy hour. I just make sure I put it in the budget. Okay. I just put it in the budget and then we're good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I didn't know Sunan that you got a psychology degree first. So I, I so this this is very interesting because you know, there's a whole subset of finance of the psychology of psychology money. of money. That's a true blank. <laughs> yeah. All right. So are you? Are you, I guess in the work that you're doing, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that shortly. We could probably go down a rabbit hole with this. But do you do a lot of behavioral finance and and psychology of money at all? So yeah. So we focus like. Kind of. So I always tell like our clients that I'm not a therapist because I didn't get a master's and like pursue all of that. But we always talk about how like how you manage your money is like a lot is really psychological, like how your feeling impacts the way you manage your money. So that's something that we do make sure to point out, like how emotions play into your relationship with money, the way you, you know, pay off debt, the way you spend. So, yeah, that is something that we have talked about because of my psychology degree which i re- honestly really enjoyed getting i bet i bet have you had the chance to read on the psychology of money kind of i haven't finished it but i did i'm like halfway through and it. it's been really helpful like it teaches you so much about that yeah yeah it's so interesting and it's it, what i think we've been david and i've been talking about this for for years that 80% of money is transactional. It works the same for everybody a dollar for me is the same as a dollar for you can buy as many margaritas for me as can buy for you all, mm-hmm. all that but 20% of finance is based on our background, our culture experience, mm-hmm. uh, our race, religion, creed, and all that kind of stuff, all those different layers, our sexual orientation, gender identity. And that 20% has an exponential effect on the overall 100%, similar to the Pareto principle. And it's, so I think it's it's great that you're able to tap it into that with your clients because so much of finances, I mean, everybody can look at the spreadsheet and be like, yeah, I probably should stop buying margaritas and put that $20 into the stock market and have much more money when I retire. Mm-hmm. But one, retirement is like 30, 50 years out. And two, mm-hmm. that doesn't address any of the psychological stuff. I mean, yeah, I get the math of it, but the psychology is has a profound effect on all that. 
yeah, I want the drink right now. (laughs) 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 So Israel, you're in teaching and you guys have decided to dive into helping people in the teaching profession with their finance. Why did you think that was so critical for the people in your profession? Yes. So as we all know, unfortunately, teachers are severely underpaid and overworked. I have not heard that before. No, uh, breaking news news sources information. Breaking news. There's a huge severe teacher shortage (laughs) (laughs) because teachers are not getting paid enough and we're incredibly stressed and overworked. And that is exacerbated depending on your particular identity. So if you identify as a black indigenous person of color, the system is actively pushing us out and the data shows it, right? Like the data shows that very few teachers of color are in the profession and we're the ones who are leaving the profession at higher rates. And that's for a myriad of factors that we can talk about for days that, you know, research indicates and that my own personal experience corroborates. But because of this dynamic, Sunem and I decided to kind of like merge our expertise and our passions of like, Sunem is passionate about empowering women of color and I'm passionate about empowering teachers of color, particularly queer and and trans teachers of color because of my identities as an openly queer teacher of color. And so because of this context and our passions, we were, we're on a mission to advance and, and, and disseminate anti-racist, culturally responsive financial literacy to as many teachers and women of color with a focus on queer and trans teachers as well. Because we know that when we learn the language of money, when we learn how to make money work for us, we're able to leverage money as a tool so we can lead the lives that we deserve. And that, to me, is what justice looks like. When we, as queer people, as women, as Black, Indigenous people of color, when we have that agency and power to decide how we want to live our lives, I think that is what like justice looks like for me. And because we live in a capitalistic society, like money gives us that. And we want teachers in particular, because we're just like severely overworked and underpaid to be able to live the lives that we deserve. Yeah. So oftentimes on this show, we talk about how most Americans have a a spending problem, not an income problem. This is one of those caveats to that is that most teachers actually have an income problem and not necessarily a spending problem. So with that, like the very pragmatic question that I have for both of you is, I mean, looking at the numbers, is financial security accessible to most teachers? Yeah, it definitely is. Of course, it's a little bit more challenging because like you said, there is like a income problem. But yeah, they can do they can definitely achieve financial independence or financial security. The only thing is like they will have to increase their their income. And like Israel has been able to do it. And a lot of the clients that we work with, like they can do it by getting side hustles, such as like going to the doing the homework center, summer school, or even like pivoting to another profession with that to get higher pay. But we have seen this happen with a lot of our clients that live in like the LA and New York City where like, you know, rent is really expensive. The cost of living is really expensive. They've been able to do that by like having side hustles. And we're all about, also we're all about balance. So we believe like, yes, there's a time where you should have a side hustle so that you can build your financial foundation. But once you have that, like you can quit them and like, you know, just do what you want. Got you. So then the, 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 it's sort of an, it sounds like then it's sort of an iterative step for you all where you 
try to get them on what you define as a fi- solid financial foundation. And then at that mm-hmm. point, they can continue whether or not they decide if they want to continue working those side hustles or, or trying to generate that in- additional income. So mm-hmm. how do you define what a solid financial foundation is? Is that the same for everybody? Is that different? You know, what, is, what does that look like exactly? Yeah, so it's different for, for everyone. So some people can be very conservative like me and it's not as conservative, but for me, like a financial security is like having an emergency fund fully funded, like having sinking funds fully funded. But like for other people, it can only be like having an emergency fund so that they're able to like feel financially at peace because they know that if they have a layoff, like, or if like their partner gets laid off, they have that money. But yeah, it definitely looks different for everyone. So how we work with our clients is that we have them do exercises in which they figure out what does financial foundation look like for them specifically. And so we never tell them what like, this is what it should look like. It's like what, like going back to the psychology of money, it's really heavily dependent on, you know, each person's specific context and backgrounds and identities. And so once we have them figure out what does a solid financial foundation mean to you, then we help them get to that financial foundation. I'm curious, how long is that process? Is that an easy step from A to B for a lot of people? No. So, I mean, it, so like I said, it's the, it's always going to be, it really depends. <laughs> Some people like they don't have a lot of like, they don't, nobody depends on them. So for them to get to point A to, to point B, it's going to be way easier than someone who has like a family that they have to support. It's definitely going to take like longer for them, but it's definitely doable. And we always highlight that like your personal finance journey is not linear. It's really dynamic, right? There's plot twists in your journeys, right? There, There's just so many things that can happen. And so like we always highlight to be gentle with yourself as you are progressing through your financial goals, as you are building that strong, solid foundation for yourself and for your family, because there's so many things that are out of our control. But we also highlight that we do have the power, the agency to be like, okay, there's a plot twist in our journey, but we can commit to deepening our financial literacy. We can commit to controlling the things that we do have in our nexus of control to ensure that we do reach that financial security that we want to have. It's very similar to to running a marathon, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who run the marathon because it, personally, they want to run the marathon. They want to succeed and do it themselves. They don't expect to be the winner, right? They don't mm-hmm. expect to compete with the Kenyans who just seem to win every year over and over and over again, right? They're doing it because it's what they what they want to do and achieve it for themselves. Maybe they have to stop a lot, run a mile, walk a minute, run a mile, walk a minute. You know, th- there's all different ways to get to the end. And we all have to accept the fact that our journey is going to be different than everyone's. What would you say for folks who are listening, who get frustrated with the fact that they are not getting there fast enough? And fast enough, I put in quotes here, folks, because I think fast enough oftentimes is our own expectations of competing against everyone else, Mm -hmm. right? Rather than competing against ourselves. What would you say to folks who are in that feeling of, it's not happening fast enough for me. I want to get there and I want to get there now. So first of all, I would say it's not a sprint. (laughs) It's a marathon, like you said. So like, you just want to be competing against yourself. Like if I'm able to save $5 now and I'm able to save $10 the next week, then I'm already winning. 
So the thing is like not compare yourself to other people, which is of course harder said than done. But because even me being like, you know, a financial expert, I'm still like, sometimes I still struggle with this. So like basically it's to remind yourself like, and like you said, like be gentle with yourself, know that you are just competing with yourself and that you will get, you know, everything happens slowly and slowly because sometimes when we start off super fast, we're going to stop. Like, for example, I see a lot of people, they're like, oh, I want to start budgeting. So they create a budget and it's really restrictive. And then the next month, like they fail at it. It's better to start slowly than to like start super quick. Absolutely. And I think that in addition to what you said, Sanem, like really gaining clarity on your why behind your financial goals. It's like, okay, this is my why. It's not Sanem's why. It's not David's why. It's my why, right? I think really has helped our clients like be gentle with themselves and like also continue on the path right and not compare themselves to other although we're both guilty of it we still we you know when i initially started like oh when you invest 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 as quickly as possible which is why we were able to i was able to reach a six-figure net worth on a teacher salary by the age of 26 but in hindsight like i feel like i deprived myself a lot and i think that like it was an unhealthy process in multiple moments and it wasn't until I left the classroom and I took a sab- I'm on sabbatical now from working full time that I realized how important working on your money mindset, your relationship with money is, because the more you work on your relationship with money, your money mindset, the more you're going to, and the more you go to therapy. So we're full, you know, completely <laughs> strong opponents of folks going to therapy. The more you do that, the more you realize that like money is not something to be accumulated, right? Like capitalism brainwashes us to believe that the one who accumulates the most money, the fastest wins. Mm -hmm. That's not true, right? Money is a tool for you to leverage, like I said in the past, for you to live the best life, whatever that means to you. So right now, for example, I'm not investing anything. I'm only spending actually But I feel like the healthiest I've been when it comes to my money mindset, because I'm learning what brings me joy. I'm learning that like these parts of the world, just like I want to be in, like, this is how I want to spend my morning. And like, I feel like for folks who are, who are listening, who have an issue or a challenge of like reaching their goals faster, it's like, I feel like you should also focus on like your why and focus on improving your relationship with money and also focusing on like what brings you joy and how money can give you those things. And that's going to help you to slow down a little bit. Right. And and fortunately, you set up the foundation for you to be able to do this, right? You set up the foundation that's allowing you now to be able to say, okay, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I am going to just spend Mm -hmm. for right now. I'm not going to be investing. It's not a pathway to a financially free life is to just Mm -hmm. do that all the time. You have to do the work first. Absolutely. And that's what we say that there's seasons in our lives, right? And we I was in a season that of hustle for those four or five years that I was building my foundation. And I we also highlight that like, you know, me coming being us being first gen and being people of color and me identify as queer and trans, like I had to build that financial foundation. Unfortunately, there's no other way for that hustle and that systemic racism and homophobia and all these factors that have no control over. And so that was just a season of life. But now a lot of folks who have our identities and experiences, because we don't work in a relationship with money, like they reach those strong financial foundations and we want to keep on going and going and going. I'm like, no, we need to slow down and enjoy what we built for ourselves. So I would imagine that there are some parallels to the LGBT community 
to the teaching profession in that there's probably a slightly higher sense of altruism in both demographics that is somewhat averse to today's current version of capitalism. What sort of challenges do you face with your clients in terms of, did you see them struggling with, like, I shouldn't be financially secure. I shouldn't acquire to accumulate too much wealth. Money is bad. I don't want to have too much of it, but just the right amount. Like, can you elaborate on that at all? Yeah. So we do, we do have clients who do struggle with that, but we always say that. So money is not like you know, I was saying, like, it's not a thing to be accumulated. It's a thing to be used to live the life that you want. So that's what we always try to mention when we are talking to our clients, like, yes, like capitalism is not the greatest thing out there, but we can use our money for good. We can contribute to like organizations that we believe in because we have that money. We can help mm-hmm. our community because we have that money. So like building wealth is not bad if you use it for the right purposes. Yes. A lot of folks from marginalized communities, we tend to be trailblazers in our communities and pursue higher education and pursue these great jobs that give us access to resources. But I think that like a lot of us tend to like also do public service jobs because we want to give back to our communities, whether you're queer, trans, of color, woman, et cetera, however you identify, like a lot of us want to do that work to advance justice for our communities because we feel guilty that we're the ones who made it out. And so we should give back. And I believe that although, I mean, I was one of those people. <laughs> I was one of those people, but I also feel like these, a lot of public service jobs tend to like be exploitative, right? They tend to like overwork us and pay us little. And that only increases sort of the wealth gap. And for various communities. And so we actively do have to remind our clients that you deserve wealth and that you deserve to be, have financial security. And you deserve to be in a job that is not inflicting so much stress onto your lives, right? And only because you made it out from poverty or X, Y, and Z does not mean that you have to remain in sort of the behaviors and mindsets in that context. And so, yeah, it's something that like we actively have to work on with our clients and even ourselves, right? We're still, we're still sort of guilty on that because it's a lifelong journey. It's not, like I said, it's not, it's not linear in terms of healing from our money traumas. And so absolutely we, we, that it's, that is a common thread that we face with our clients. Yeah. I think that's probably the most ubiquitous generational wealth is that money is evil and I shouldn't have too much of it (laughs) because otherwise then I'll be associated with the evilness. Right. And so that's something we all have to, to overcome. But to your point, you know, the more liberties that we avail ourselves to, the more money that we have, the more opportunity we have to be able to help. And people who vote differently than us are definitely having no problem with accumulating wealth (laughs) to use that against our our, our benefit. So you mentioned earlier that teaching can be somewhat exploitative in that it's not paying you a lot of money, but overworks you. You guys sometimes recommend not only having an emergency fund, but you also recommend having what you call a sabbatical fund who, that would give you the opportunity, I guess, to bounce away from your job if you want to. Would you mind elaborating on that, please? Yes. So we always talk about the importance of having an emergency fund. Like Everybody should have 
But a sabbatical fund is basically like a fund if you want to leave your job to be able to travel, you want to pursue a different career, you just want to rest. And we believe that you should have that because on top of your emergency fund, because when you have that and you give yourself that rest, if an unexpected expense comes up, you have your emergency fund to use that money and it's not going to drain your sabbatical fund. So let's say you're like planning on going on a, you know, traveling for six months, then you don't have to worry that it's going to drain it and it's going to change your plans. And that's why, like, if you want to take that break, we definitely encourage you to start saving for that sabbatical. I love that. And Israel, is that kind of what you're doing now? <laughs> yes, I am arresting. I'm having bopping around, drinking my margaritas, you know, <laughs> doing all the amazing things. And I, during our training sessions and our coaching sessions, I always tell folks this. And during when we have, I feel like everyone should take a sabbatical. I think that is such, there's so much power and beauty and like stopping and resting and getting so clear headed of like what you wanted from your life and i think that like for me i was just in go 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 mode for so long that i definitely needed this this time to just like reset and i've learned so much about myself i've had so many epiphanies and so i strongly recommend everyone if they have the opportunity to do so to have a sabbatical whether six months or a year or two years however much you can afford John and I were both fortunate to work for a company that did provide sabbaticals for their employees mm-hmm. every five years. Every five wow. years, you got four weeks pay and you were required to take all four weeks off at one oh, time wow. period, except oh, you there was touch. two weeks of vacation to that. So you could have a total of six weeks off. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. John and I learned a lot about ourselves and had some experiences in life that we would never never have had had we not worked for that company. So we're very appreciative of that. And it does give you the opportunity. I think we do have a go, 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 go mentality in this country. You're not working. Seems typically everyone who is above us is looking down on us and saying, you're not working hard enough because you're not at this level. So you need to work harder to get to that level, which it kind of leads into another question I have here. Being queer, being people of color and being individuals who worked in professions that were low paying. And first of all, what would you say to others who are in that situation right now, who maybe feel like that's what they deserve, right? Because that's all that they work towards that. That's where they're at. And that's what they deserve. And then from the flip side of the people who say, well, if you can do it, then anybody can do it. How do you feel about that? Okay. So the first lots the unpack first there. I'm sorry, people, but yeah, the first group of people, I'll be like, one, if you can go to therapy. I feel like therapy is life changing for everyone. And I feel like invest in professionals, whether that's a money coach or and or a therapist who can help you unpack sort of those mindsets and, and understandings of, of yourself and of the world. I think that'll be key for the first group of people. Do you have anything to add for that for the first group of people? Uh, no, I think that's good. Okay. And then for the second group of people who is on the opposite, right? Who say, if I can do it, you can do it. That's fake news. Okay. Absolutely fake news. No, I think we all have different levels of privilege, right? And 
we all have different experiences and different tools in our toolkit. And so my tools and experiences are not, even though we grew up in the same household, are very different yeah. from hers. Yeah. Right. And so I feel like we were able to build wealth, but we did it very differently because, you know, I identify as a cis man and she's a woman, right? And cis woman and I'm queer. And so I, like, for example, as an openly queer teacher, I was teaching in Nashville the first full year of teaching. And it was incredibly hard for me to be an openly queer Latino male educator in the building. And so I had to leave Nashville to find a city and a school context that was more accepting and inclusive of my identities as being openly queer. Whereas Sunan didn't change, didn't have that challenge, right? And so, like, I feel like to answer that question, it really depends. Like, only because I was able to do it does not mean that folks like me are able to do it mm-hmm. because we all come from different contexts and have life different life conditions. Yeah, and also like we don't know. Like, for example, we were able to do it because we don't have any kids. Like it's, it's more challenging when you have a family to support. And like, if you have mental health issues, like, you know, physical issues, like, you know, all of those things that other people might not have that were able to make it. Yeah. And I had access to you. Right. Right. And so that's, that was huge for me. I would have just been spending all my money on margarita. No (laughs) investment portfolio. I can tell you that much. Right. (laughs) If I didn't have her. Right. And so. Yeah, that's 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 a great point to know. So as a follow-up to that, what would you each say was, if there was one thing you would attribute your financial success to, and maybe Israel's answer is Sunem. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but if you had one thing out of here, right? You know, she could be like, dinner on me because, you know. No. <laughs> as an inspiration for our listeners who who might be feeling a little bit low and struggling with, with, with where to go and, and how to get to financial independence and freedom, what was one thing that you would say was critical to your success? Why don't we start with you, Sunem? <laughs> so for me, I think it was community. When I started reading like a lot of articles, reading blogs, listening to podcasts and books, I was like, oh, I'm not the only one who wants to become debt free. I'm not the only one who wants to build wealth. And for me, that was really helpful because I was like, Ew. like I saw the possibility and that kept me going because, you know, building wealth should not be an individual thing. It should be a community thing because if I'm able to build wealth, I'm able to help Israel build wealth and Israel is able to help someone else. So for me, that was really critical and me getting where I am right now. Yeah, for sure. And in addition to Sunem, of course, <laughs> I think like, <laughs> like I mentioned before, just like coming to the realization that money can get me the life that I want, like, and me clarifying that financial goals for myself has given me all the motivation to continue to just build, just, you know, leverage money, leverage money to build the life that I want. And like similar to them to them to the like having that community is super important because whenever the journey gets really challenging, like I still listen to podcasts and I still tap into the personal finance community and that helps me a ton. Love that. So you told Entrepreneur Magazine in September 2022 that you had a combined, I think, net worth of 350000 But the stock market's been a little bit of a roller coaster. <laughs> Howard, do you mind sharing how you guys are faring today? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, the, the stock market has definitely been down. And I'm actually like 
So I'm the type of person who likes to calculate my net worth every month. I tell people not to do this if you, because like we talk about how like money's really like psychological. Some people look at their investments and then panic and they want to try to sell it. But for me, I study finance. I believe in the stock market. So I was like, but you know, that's what I say, but I'm like, is this really going to be like, am I really going to be like this when I notice my money going down? And I'm actually surprised that it has been in the beginning. Yes. I'm going to admit I panicked. I'm like, Oh my God, I don't have the money that I had before, but now I'm like, oh, you know, whatever. I know it's going to go up. I'm okay with that. But yeah, so definitely. So when we talked to entrepreneur magazine, I had over $200,000 and now I have $190,000. And it hasn't gone down because I am still investing consistently in it. Yes. And I had over 150 k Now it's gone down to like around 130 or less than that. I actually haven't even checked because for me, it's like, I know, like Sinan said, I also believe in the stock market because from what you can extract from history and previous stock market data, we're confident that it's going to return in the future. We don't know when that one happened, but it will based on the data. And so for me, I'm sort of just like focusing not on my net worth the way I had in the past, but more of so like, what do I want from my life? And so I haven't been really checking my numbers, but Sunem has always been more like numbers, like driven than me. She's the one who, when I was building well, she was the one who like got me into updating my net worth every month. And so now you would like literally look at your especially like every day, right? When we were back in the office, you would look at it every day. I'm like, oh, that's a lot. But you know, every, everyone <laughs> likes to do what they like to do, right? I'm not here to judge. <laughs> yeah, but it's one thing to say, look at the historical returns and be like, the market's going to come back and the biggest gains are going to be right after the worst drop, right? But it's another thing to actually ride that roller coaster. So how have you been able to withstand that psychologically and not be like, let's sell out of everything and be like 90-year-old investors? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I just don't look at it. I don't look at it. And I think that has helped me a lot. Like I actually remove the apps from my phone, which I don't know if it's recommended by the money experts, you know, but I did. (laughs) And yeah, like I said, like just focusing on other parts of my life and that has helped me a ton. Yeah. And for me, like I believe in it. I, I study the portfolio system and theory. And like, I'm like, the only way my money's never going to return if it's we have a zombie apocalypse, we have a war <laughs> or stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, other than that, you know, I'm good. <laughs> That's what I, I, I say to John oftentimes. If, you know, if the market goes so horribly wrong that we won't have enough money to retire, then there's something else going yes. on in yes. the world and I think we're going to be worried more about that than we are going yes. to be about what our our retirement that's, portfolio. That's literally what we talk about. We've also even talked about what happened, what would happen with the zombie apocalypse. And then claims she'll be one of the survivors. I'm like, I don't think so. Right? <laughs> She's been watching the AWS a lot, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I know we touched on it a little bit, but not directly. So what is the Dream Teacher Project and who is it for? Absolutely. So like we mentioned in the past, the Dream Teacher Project, we are on a mission to make financial literacy as digestible and accessible to teachers and women of color and other folks in marginalized communities. Given the intersectionality of our identities and experiences, we want as many people from marginalized communities to deepen their financial literacy, achieve financial security and have financial peace. For us, this is what economic justice looks like for our communities. And it's absolutely necessary, right? Like teachers of color in particular cannot afford to be financially illiterate in a system that's like actively pushing us out of the profession. 
by having us severely underpaid and overworked, then we can't wait for the system to pay us more. We need to take action ourselves. And for non-teachers from marginalized communities, inflation has been goes out the roof, right? And the wealth gap is only increasing. And we need to tackle this issue head on on a micro level by improving our own finances and ensuring that we have financial security in the face of these larger systemic forces. Love that. And how do people find the Dream Teacher Project and keep track of everything you have going on in Dream Teacher Project and on social media? Yeah. So you can connect with us on Instagram at the Dream Teacher Project. That's we build a community of like-minded teachers and women of color and queer people of color who are committed to deepening their financial literacy. And we also started a podcast, which is called The Money Chisme. It just dropped last week on Monday. And we're really excited about that. Nice. Sure. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. What's the name of the podcast? It's called Money Chisme. So Money Chisme. So do you know what chis- so chisme is the Spanish word for like gossip? But gossip sounds so strong. <laughs> chisme, in sp- gossip in Spanish is not as strong. Maybe it's a, the the word. More like but a kiki. Yeah, like a kiki, like money kiki. There we go. Yeah, yes, money kiki. Yeah, I love that. I love it. I'm going to start using that as a translation. Money kiki. Yes, exactly like, that could be your tagline for your show. Right, money kiki. <laughs> That's kiki, right? I love it. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. It was, it was great to meet you all and for sharing your story about what it was like to come out of first-generation immigrants to poverty and and still being able to get on the path to financial security. You know, we, we just hope that people can connect with your story and think that if they're struggling with some of these challenges too, that they can use you as an inspiration to to get on their path to financial security and independence as well. So thank you very much. No, thank you so much, both of you, for doing this very, very important work for our, our community, for queer and trans folks, right? Because I feel like there's not enough of us out there doing that work. And I'm so grateful that there's like leaders like you doing that work and giving this necessary financial literacy and education to our community because we know how important money can be and trans- how money can be so transformative for our life trajectories in our community. Yeah. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you for listening to another episode. Here's your quick money takeaway. It's easy for us to look at other people's successes and feel like we're losing. But as Israel eloquently stated, we're all on our own journey, and that journey is a marathon. It's not a sprint. So look to others as inspiration, but not as a barometer. And if you're a teacher, visit the Dream Teacher Project at dreamteacherproject.com. Then join us this Thursday for a bonus episode on our top three tips for building a rainy day fund. And next Tuesday, when we talk about the hot new dating trend, Infladating. Thanks and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.